Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Traveling with people is always an interesting experience. I don't know um, about you, but there's nothing like, you know, navigating, you know, a timely schedule and like security checkpoints and a scarcity of any kind of good food, right? That, that makes you just like, I don't know, show who you really are or see the differences between you and others. Um, and perhaps as I'm talking, you're remembering some travel over the holidays and you want to like butt your spouse in, with an elbow, or maybe you're thinking about that family vacation you had when you were a kid that just oh, that was a memorable one, or um, time that you're traveling with friends. Um, I remember traveling with some friends a few years ago, and um, for, for, I guess, a number of reasons, I was sort of the keeper of the schedule, and um, everything went wrong. <laughs> I mean, like, the, we got there, fine, but then, like, the schedule for the day and what we were supposed to be doing, it was like, somebody spent way too long in the bathroom. We weren't sure if they were ever going to emerge. And then somebody else, like, was just gone. Like, we all woke up, and they were gone. Um, and they had left to go wander the area of the city and the neighborhood to get the lay of the land so that they might know exactly where we are and, and like, how they could navigate. We couldn't get a hold of him. All of a sudden, he just sort of showed back up right about the time it was we were supposed to leave. <laughs> um, and he knew the lay of the land. Um, but, like, everybody's different especially when you're traveling through uh, another place. And I can't promise you that as we travel through this letter, I'm going to meet every one of your preferences in terms of how you sort of go about the task or what you need in order to make it through the checkpoints. Um, But I do know that it's helpful at times to get the lay of the land. My my buddy was not crazy. Um, And so what I want to do before we zoom into these verses is to zoom out for a second and to help you see where they fit, okay? So in the first two verses of Colossians, we have the greeting. It's a letter, you know? So we would probably write a letter and say, dear so-and-so, you know, if you still write letters. Anybody still write letters? We should start that again. Let's do that, church. But there's a greeting for a couple verses, which is, of course, customary, but there's also a bit of uniqueness to it, as the Apostle Paul is kind of already hinting at some of what he wants to write about in the very first words of the letter. And then, if you're looking at, you know, a paper Bible, they do still exist, church, not just phones, um, but a paper Bible, you see there's a paragraph. You can't see that on the screen. There's a paragraph there, and then there's another paragraph that follows it. Two of the opening paragraphs, and the first one is basically Thanksgiving. The writers are saying, hey, we're thanking God because we heard about what's going on in your town. What happened was the gospel reached this little town called Colossae. And then the person who brought it there, Epaphras, I like to call him Pappy, and he took the news back to where he had been trained, to Paul and to Timothy. And he, he told the report of all that God had done and people accepting, receiving Jesus, and then beginning to change their community and, and, and letting it be marked by love and hope. And so he tells this report in the whole of that paragraph. They're just saying, you know, we praise and thank God for what's happening there. 
And then the next paragraph, he goes, and we pray continually, we nonstop, regularly, day after day, time after time, for God to continue working in your town, in your community. And we're asking that you would grow in knowledge. And his whole prayer, his heart, is that they would grow from the very sort of start of life in Christ into a mature life in Christ. He's asking that they would learn how to please the Lord in every respect. And the the interesting thing is you look at the introduction and then the first two paragraphs, there's all of these overlapping words and phrases. I think there's a slide where I can show some of them to you, right? If you had colored pencils and a Bible, like you could just highlight some of these words and you start to see them all line up, right? In the first paragraph, since the day you heard, and in the second half, since the day we heard, always. They've not stopped praying. We pray for you. We're praying for you. They understood the grace of God in truth, and he wants them to grow in knowledge of who God is. They're bearing fruit. The gospel's bearing fruit in all the world there. And then he wants for the church to bear fruit in his prayer. There's all these connecting themes going on in the first two paragraphs. And then it shifts. And if you listen to some of the scholars as they wrestle through the way that verbs are translated here in verse 12 and 13. It's like sometimes 12 is the transition and sometimes 13 is the transition, but you can see it really clearly in the way that the voice shifts. Look at this. In verse 9, of course, you have, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then in 13, the shift happens. And he says, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Somehow now, rather than rejoicing about the report that they gave or praying for them, the shift has taken place in the letter where he's talking to the saints, including the writer. He's saying, us. This is a key that there's something changing in the direction of the letter. We're still in the same section but there's a shift happening in terms of focus. The nature of a life that's pleasing to the Lord was the paragraph we studied last week, talking about all these different ways that we could live to please and walk in a manner worthy of God. But now the shift has gone to lay the foundation of a life pleasing to the Lord. And that's exactly what the apostle wants. He wants them to learn to please the Lord, but they've got to know where they started or where to start when it comes to living for the Lord. He wants them to take what they've heard, take what's, what's been given to them in terms of this new life, and to let it sort of pass into a way of living. He wants their infancy to reach maturity in the faith, which is to say that this whole letter could be summed up, and at the very core of it, as a prescription for how a church or how an individual can grow up in the faith. Look at the center of the letter with me. Chapter 2, verse 6. This is literally the whole thing in a nutshell. Therefore, speaking back to the whole first section of the letter, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. So the first half of the letter is all about that phrase, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. 
The second half of the letter is all about the next phrase, how you walk in him and how you are rooted and built up and established in him. Here at the core, the center of the letter is the blueprint for how to even understand what's happening, which means we're still in the first part looking at what it means to receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. And that brings us to our question for this morning. What does it actually mean to receive Jesus? What does it actually mean to receive Jesus as Christ, as the Lord? And in these couple verses, we get a massive answer. Let me show it to you. The first one is this. Receiving Christ means you are delivered from darkness. Delivered from darkness. Do you have a friend, an acquaintance, who sort of stretches your mind? Like whenever you talk with them, think with them, they sort of expand the way that you think or see the world. I have one friend, and we had coffee recently, and it's like we always are talking, you know, and he's helping me think broadly, intellectually, philosophically, sometimes with, you know, cultural commentary as well. And as we're sort of talking, it's early in the morning, but coffee is flowing and conversation is going and I'm having fun and he's always teaching me and expanding. And, and I'm going, okay, I'm tracking with you. We're talking back and forth about this and that. And then he referenced this podcast he listened to that pointed to an article in the Atlantic, which, so we're, again, we're all over the place going, hey, here are four meta-narratives, meta-big-picture stories for what it is to be an American. Interesting. So I'm not going to summarize them for you because I don't think I can do that. I'm not that highbrow in terms of intellectual. But let me list them to you. For some, America, there's a group that conceives of America and could be called smart America. Intelligent, understanding. They have achieved academically and financially. There is free America. There is real America, and there is just America. Different ways of thinking about who we are and what it means to live here. Now listen, before you get tense as I'm talking about all of these terms, I hope that they've intrigued you, and perhaps maybe they're already starting to unsettle you, but hold on, my point is in no way a political one this morning, especially because all of those terms I don't know, I potentially I could see in front of me. That's the uniqueness of our church. But think about this. Rather than a political point, I have a pastoral one. There is something in the way we are made that needs story. Like you were hardwired, whether you think about it or not, to find yourself within a story and to navigate reality by a grand sense of story. And if you missed it, the Apostle Paul is cluing the Colossian church and he's cluing the Christian church into the most grand and great story that was ever told and the one in which these Christians are to find their sense of place within. Look at in verse 12. He says that they should thank the Lord always, 
right? Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified them to share. There's your one clue. And then in the inheritance, there's your second clue. What's he doing? He's pointing them back to the great story of the Bible, which is the story of Israel. He wants them, this church that is in Colossae, with all sorts of distance from Israel, to understand Israel and the story that they find themselves within. And then he goes on further. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Do you know what that is? For anyone who's reading the scriptures and anyone with a lens to the Hebrews story, that's a ding, ding, ding. He's talking about Exodus. He's talking about Egypt. He's saying here that the deliverance from the land of darkness as the story of God's people of old is the story of God's people in the new. And it's the story of God's people everywhere. He's saying that, listen, just as one of the plagues that Moses, by the hand of God, placed over the Egyptians, where they literally were in darkness for three days, stumbling around, complete darkness, and yet there was one part of the land that was what? Bright as day. He's saying that that is the church's story, Colossae, as well. That they have been delivered from darkness and brought into the kingdom of of light. Delivered literally means to drag out of danger. This is rescue mission. And if you read Exodus, what you see is that God literally heard the cries. He heard the pains of his people. And then he stepped in to intercede. It's like, here they are in the first century, reflecting back on all that's happened nearly 1,400 years prior weaving in that grand story for this particular people so that one backroom, Hebrew, might get brought into all humanity, including the Colossians, such that one land, Canaan, might get broadened into all creation that God is making new, such that an earthly glory, I mean, think about it, a land flowing with milk and honey, that was the promised land, might get elevated into a heavenly glory and the renewal of all things beautiful and true like the Garden of Eden. He's saying that is your story and God has fitted you for the family. Not only has he delivered them, pulled them out of danger, but he's pulled them out of darkness. I mean, admittedly, if you think about being delivered from the domain of darkness and that's what it means to receive Jesus, that's not quite politically correct terminology in our day to think that there are actually people living in the land of darkness. That's what the Bible is saying. But yet it says it everywhere that people were blind and then they saw that they were spiritually dead and then came to life but that they were lost and then they were found, that they were captive and then they were freed. Darkness is the fitting term in the biblical's language for what it means to be apart from Christ. Listen to what one scholar says about it. He says, people who have not been rescued by God in Christ live in a power structure, a domain that's characterized by the forces of chaos, evil, and judgment. If you read Genesis, that's what it's like to live under Pharaoh. Chaos, evil, 
judgment. There's harsh, cruel, self-interested leadership in Pharaoh. There's, there's gentle, kind, loving rule in Jesus. Right? There's foolish decisions in Pharaoh. There's leadership that's good and true and wise in Jesus. Right? There's falsehood, and then there's goodness and truth. There's immorality, anger, strife, vengeance, violence. There's oppression in the land of darkness. In the shadows, these things tend to thrive. But the reality is, for our world, is they don't always happen in the shadows. Sometimes in broad daylight. The gospel comes with the truth that the domain of darkness is real. And that apart from Christ, people live in that place. But here's the good news. The good news is that in this small turn of phrase, we have a key to the great story of Jesus. That he is the one who went behind enemy lines into the land of darkness. That on the cross, darkness came for him and totally submerged him. If you look at the way he describes his own arrest and crucifixion, look at it. This is Luke chapter 22. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. In the light of day, you didn't lay hands on me, but you came and grabbed me. And now this is your hour, the hour of the power of darkness. But fam, that hour was short. The hour was short because Jesus went to the cross willingly, and he went into the heart of darkness purposefully, such that on the cross, he might triumph in victory over all dark power and authority. On the cross, Jesus plunged into deep darkness, overcame darkness in a way that silenced it forever. What you have in the gospel is the good news that Jesus, if you belong to him, has won your complete and eternal freedom from all that is darkness. You have been delivered. The authority, the power, the influence of darkness on you is broken. Paul wants the Colossians to know that God has rescued them from darkness. He wants them to know that they are a new people, according to Peter's words, who have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. That's their story. Now, if this letter is about maturity and the movement from immaturity to maturity, let's talk practically. Because deliverance means that that gospel maturity for us is is a growing freedom from the, the, the entanglement with things dark. That for us to grow up in the faith is actually to continue to walk away from things that tend to grab hold of us and tend to bind us. And I wonder if you remember the story of Israel when they made it out of Egypt and as they're walking through the path of life with this new leader and this new hope, what do they want to do? So they want to go back to Egypt. Such is true for us. Even with new life, we end up craving the old. Even being freed to enter a much grander story than our own cultural story. 
we remain bound and tied to that cultural story as if it's all defining and consuming. The Bible doesn't call us to reject completely or to completely leave our culture behind. We are part of a culture. But it does call us to examine it such that we don't walk in the ways of Egypt when we've been fitted for the promised land. Receiving Christ means not only that you're delivered, it also means that you're transferred. So let's read on, all right? He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Transfer means a change of location, a change of position. To be in Christ or to receive Christ Jesus as Lord has a local sense to it. It's a geographical move. Receiving Jesus means that you live, you reside now in the kingdom rather than in the domain, right? You live somewhere else. That's where you belong, and that's where you reside. So if the gospel, in a word, transfers your citizenship, then it means that your zip code, your homeland has now shifted not, not any more to the domain of darkness, but, but your place now is the kingdom of light, the kingdom of love. And, and that kingdom is one where Jesus is the beloved son, the beloved king, and the full force of God's love upon Jesus now lands upon us also as his children, right? It is, it is a place of love and a place of light, which means that our, our change here is not just like a stamp in a passport. Our change is a complete change in practice. The kind of new life we've been given results in a new way of living. It means that we've come into a family who has different ways, patterns, practices, a different approach to the world and to life. And what it means is that we will, as we grow in the faith, continue to learn the family ways of God because we belong now to the family place. And that's what maturity in the gospel is all about, that we would learn a kind of living, a kind of life that's actually full because it's actually in line with the way that God has made us and designed us to live. And the transfer is permanent. When we receive Jesus, it means we are moved to a new place. It's almost as if this, I've said this before, but I think it's helpful here, that to receive Jesus means that you begin to operate and learn to act far more like a kingdom local than a Christian tourist. There are many in our time that function as tourists in a Christian land. Maybe perhaps you took a language class in high school, whether it's Spanish or French or German, and you learned enough that you could sort of travel to a place and know how to get to the bathroom or know how to say hello or goodbye and navigate your way around. But the reality is many Christians in our time and place operate like that all life long. But God's design for us is not that we would live as tourists, but that we would become locals to the kingdom not just in language, but in the very habits, in the very values, in the very ways of being in a place such that they are increasingly natural to us to live after the pattern 
of Jesus, the gospel changes us like that. It changes everything. No doubt becoming a local is going to take some serious kind of transformation, right? It's going to take growth, change, change of mind, change of heart, change of habits. But the Apostle Paul will get there for us. Like that, that's, we're already getting ahead at chapter three. He's going to talk about how does significant change happen in our lives. But for now, he's laying foundation such that we would know that in order to be transformed, we first have to be transferred. We have to move places. And the way that we move is by receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord. I'm reading this book with a few friends, just learning together. It's called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Pete Scazzaro. I've read a few other of his and have learned from him over the years. And the interesting thing that he says about particularly our place in America is that we have a revivalist focus. Now, I'm all for revival. I pray for revival. I want revival. I want significant renewal. I want people to be changed, converted, come to faith. But here's what he says. Our revivalist focus on individuals making a decision to receive Christ has led to a two-tier Christianity with believers and disciples. We now have large numbers of believers who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but who are not disciples following him. Now, here's the thing. Paul is getting at transferred because he wants to get you to transformed. He's getting at new life, new place, because he wants to bring you to new living, a new way of being in the world. He's after disciples, followers of Jesus who follow Jesus unto maturity not just believers who assent to something, but then fail to live in light of it. He wants us to be transferred and then transformed. Let's look at this last phrase in here, receiving Christ. Receiving Christ means that you are redeemed. Not just delivered, not just transferred, but redeemed. It says here, that we have been transferred into the kingdom of the loved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, if you're reading old, ancient language, of course, is a quick key into the practice of slave trading in that day. Redemption is the language that was used when someone would go and make a purchase at the slave market, either for freedom of that person or possession of that person. It is the sum that is put down in exchange for a life. Now, if you're reading that just in ancient literature, that's what it would mean. And there's definitely some of that going on here. But if you're reading this through the lens of Israel's story, it's going to cue you again to Egypt. It's going to cue you again to go, yes, there was a price paid. There was a freedom won as God redeemed us from our captivity in Egypt and freed us to a new life in the promised land. It is as if Paul is again wrapping the Colossians up into that great grand story, Israel's history, because it matters for them. 
And here's what you see. As he grabs from the old and pulls it into the new, Paul is putting Jesus as the true Israel. He's putting Jesus as the one who is faithful. He's putting Jesus as the true king. He's putting Jesus as the one whom God loves, like God set his love upon the people Israel. And then he's saying that for all who would receive him, you've been fitted for God's family, you've been rescued from sin's tyranny, and the cost of your own sin and your own rebellion has been absorbed in him. He's paid for it. Jesus has given a ransom so that redemption could happen by giving the price of his own life for our lives. That's the story that Paul wants to wrap them within of what it means to receive Jesus. He has given his life as a ransom in order to purchase our freedom. And here's the thing. That means that you and I need to both receive forgiveness, new life, and we need to extend forgiveness, new living. That's where he goes, right? Look at, if you go in chapter three, he says, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive one another. Unforgiveness, family, carries with it a whole world of darkness. Right? The truth that you are part of the beloved son's kingdom and part of God's family should just like overwhelm us at times. Right? It should move us to the point that, that like if you believe Jesus Christ is Lord, it means that the kingdom of light has dawned upon your life such that a new day has come and the forgiveness you've received might then empower the forgiveness you need to extend. In Jesus, you're freed from bondage to sin done by you and to sin done to you. Because when you have been hurt and you have been harmed and you stay in unforgiveness, you stay bound rather than free. Forgiveness is complicated, and I would love to preach a whole sermon, maybe multiple this year, on forgiveness. I think that's probably something that we need every year because of how challenging it is to live in our world. But look at forgiveness is not reconciliation. Let's talk about what it's not. It's not reconciliation because sometimes in a relationship, it doesn't automatically return to the way it was. There's like significant danger still, or there's enough harm done that it can't just quite come back to the way it was, and maybe it won't or shouldn't. The reality is, though, some of us withhold forgiveness until we feel as if we've been healed enough to extend it. But the opposite is actually true. In this great book called Steps to Freedom, the author says we don't heal in order to forgive. We forgive in order to heal. As we let go, as we forgive, there's actually a meaningful healing that comes into our lives and into our hearts. If not, we stay stuck and we stay wounded. Forgiveness is not forgetting either. Some of us just say, yeah, I put that out of mind. 
Oftentimes when we put something out of mind, it sometimes settles still into the heart. And it creates a kind of bitterness between us and others and at times between us and God. It's not forgetting because Jesus didn't forget us. He consciously acknowledged and absorbed the cost of our rebellion. And forgiveness to others is always the conscious choice to absorb the consequences of their actions. And to say, I will bear that because Jesus has borne mine and I will walk forward in light of it, perhaps scarred, but now free because of Jesus. Jesus died, taking on the full consequences of our actions and offered us forgiveness so that we might do the same when we forgive others. And forgiveness is also not a feeling. I mean, it, it will. It must Forgiveness, get to the core of your emotional life if it's going to be fruitful, right? Forgiveness is is heart-wrenching, but it's also not a feeling because if you wait until you feel like forgiving, I can tell you, you'll never quite feel like forgiving. Like it it is a decision. It is a choice, an act of the will that you continue to make and walk forward within. And you can do it, like, because God commands it. It has to be something we can do. It's something we can do in the strength of his power. You can forgive. Don't wait until you feel like it. Unforgiveness is sneaky, friends. It is so sneaky. It has far-reaching consequences for us individually and collectively as a community, which is why the Apostle Paul writes about it time and time again to every one of the churches that he ministers to. And so the question is, where do you need forgiveness? Who do you need to forgive? Because unless you forgive, you cannot be free. Right? I, I, I vividly remember sitting years ago with one of my mentors and we were talking about and reflecting upon our own relationship. And it was, it was never that he said this to me or like made this claim, but it was the Holy Spirit in that moment as we were talking about some of the challenges of our relationship and me learning from him where it became so clear to me that my distrust of him here was actually the result of the harm that I had felt by a mentor here. I could not trust him but it wasn't about him. I had pulled that there into this here because of unforgiveness. It has a weird triangulating pattern to it where something affecting you here all of a sudden blurts out in anger there, right? Where a distrust there from one church now affects this other church. Right? Where, where cynicism in this moment here is actually the result of that memory there. Unforgiveness is powerful. And it can have a hold on us. Think about it this way. Frequently, unforgiveness becomes about more than you affecting many others. 
And so, do we believe when we receive Christ Jesus the Lord that we have forgiveness of sins completely, totally, in a way that frees us to forgive the sins and mistakes of others? That's the power of the gospel at work, producing love for the saints, which is what Paul is saying is going on here in this. And I can tell you something. There is nothing more kingdom of God-like than forgiveness because it don't happen in the domain of darkness. It is full of light and goodness and truth and the power of God when it happens in lands. But my, we have to receive Jesus, the Lord, as the one who delivered us, as the one who transferred us, as the one who redeemed us, as the one who forgave us, if we're going to have any chance of extending that good news to others. Who do you need to forgive? The gospel is good news, church. It's good news for a hurting world. It's good news for a darkened world. It's good news for a rebellious world. It's good news for my world and for yours. Let's receive Christ Jesus the Lord and then so walk in him towards maturity.